But it's good to see you here this morning. Uh, I want to jump back to the book of Revelation in chapter 16. I want to pick up where we left off with the sixth angel in verse 12. And I want to read Revelation 16, verse 12, all the way through 16. Verses 12 to 16. <clears throat> and is there any way like these lights can like, do they have a light that makes your hair look thicker? Turn them all off. Thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, little Hans, my little boy, he comes up to me. And, you know, Luke and Jessica, they're not here this morning. They, they, uh, but their son is Walter. And Hans comes up to me and he goes, he goes, Dad, Walter came up to me and said, I've never noticed that your dad is bald in the back. <laughs> I said, I'm not bald. I have a long hair that I have circling. <laughs> it's attached with, with a bit of glue. Yeah, imagine, I can't do that. If I was you guys, I can do a hat. I can't do that up here. It's just, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, uh, I told Matt, I said, I'm going to go to one of those places. I said, you, know, you don't believe me. I said, you know, the hair plugs. And he goes, <laughs> he goes no, you're not. I said, if I can, I will. <laughs> I said, you're that shallow? Yeah. Yes, I am. I, we all have our sins. <laughs> now you know mine. Vanity. Well, I don't have much to be proud about, so <laughs> at least I have my hair. You know what balding, I don't even know why I'm talking about this. You know what balding does? It keeps us humble. Holy cow. You're a man and you're all like, hey, I got the world in control. And it's like all of a sudden you bald. He's like, yep, yep, I got nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway. But I was just noticing that. I was watching the videos online of the YouTube. I was like, I look more bald than, well, maybe I don't. <laughs> maybe that's actually what I look like. So those dumb lights shining through my hairline. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, let's pray and go home. <laughs> there's, no, there's no redeeming from any of that. <laughs> no, just, okay. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. <laughs> for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to, keep to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text, you would give clarity of thought. Is that we look at the world situation, we think, wow. And yet, you and your word have laid out a precise pattern, a very understandable pattern of what is to be expected in the days to come. And the reason you did this is so that we wouldn't be caught off guard. And yet, when things transpire, the first thing we feel is panic, and we feel like we're caught off guard. I pray, God, that we become better students. You said in your word that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. As the Lord, this morning, though I hope to encourage people, it's not for merely encouragement. I pray, God, this morning that there would be the transmission of understanding, the, uh, the seed that was sown that lacked understanding in Matthew 13 
was the seed that was quickly picked off. And if we don't understand what we're believing, then we'll quickly fall away when and only when the trials come. So God, please give us grace. Please heal our hearts, Lord. So many in the room, in the world, carrying so many burdens, so many fears. The past can be covered under the blood, but the future is often the place that we begin to panic. And you told us today. So I pray, God, that we wouldn't project the future. We would project you um, and that you would become our goal and vision. So help us and heal us. We pray for our loved ones. That we, our hearts just break. My heart breaks for our loved ones that don't know you. And so heal our hearts and forgive our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we delve into the final stages of the book of Revelation here, we encounter the seven bold judgments that are seen here in chapter 16. And in fact, in chapter 15 and verse 1, it talks about this when it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And so the wrath of God is finished, so it says, with the seven plagues that are then given to us in description in Revelation in chapter 16. And what we note is that the wrath of God is not a vindictive thing. And normally the wrath of God is not an explosive thing. The wrath of God is not mean. In fact, the wrath of God, according to Isaiah in chapter 28, is his, quote, strange work. It's his strange work, not his normal activity. And he is, the Bible says in Exodus 34, he is slow to anger, rich in mercy, abounding in love. Or as Peter, even the New Testament says, that he's not willing that any man should perish that all men would actually come unto repentance. And that's found in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And thus, I think we understand that his wrath is not just an expression of his justice. Well, there is expressions of justice, but it's not just that. But as we've seen here in Revelation, it's a means for repentance. And thus, in chapter 16 and verse 9, look what it reads. It talks about they did not repent and give God glory. Verse 11, they did not repent of their deeds. And the same thing spoken for us in chapter 9, they did not repent. And I have to say quickly as an aside, connotatively in our culture, we view that word repent to mean, I hate you, you're of no value. <laughs> I mean, you need to repent. That's not what it means. It means metanoia, to change my mind. He was trying, in other words, to get people to change their minds, and they wouldn't have it. So the pressure kept on getting increased. And so that usage of that word, that strange phrasing, betrays the purpose of these trials, namely to get men to change their mind. And so while these judgments are part of his justice, the heart behind it, as we found, is the salvation of man. And like as we discussed last week, death row has a, has a sobering consideration for the life of the man on death row. The foxhole conversions are real, aren't they? And in the same regard, God uses, so it seems, these trials to convince men. And because God views eternity as much more important than time, his measures can kind of seem extreme to us in time, but they're not, especially when you consider that time is short. Exceptional times require exceptional measures. And so chapter 16 unfolds as a pivotal courtroom scene where divine judgments are being pronounced and the pressure, obviously, is increasing upon the earth. These judgments are part of what the scriptures call the divine council. We witness this assembly mirrored in various parts of the Bible. We already talked about Psalm 82. That word, divine council, is a biblical term. 
And in Psalm 82, it says God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. There's other gods, uh-huh. There's only one true living God. There's only one God who created everything. But the Bible says that there's other gods, but they're created beings. And those created beings have tremendous power. And in fact, those created beings fallen from their state are the gods of the pagan religions in the world. So when people say, God told me, don't say, no, he didn't. Yeah, he did, but not the true and the living God. Because there's one God. And what God reveals to us is that there is this divine council. And in that divine council, there was a rebellion against God. And therefore, Psalm 82 talks about him dealing with that said rebellion. Or take 1 Kings in chapter 22, where the prophet Micaiah saw the Lord seated upon the throne. And he's attended by this host of heaven, as well as the events in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 2, where the sons of God were coming to present themselves before God. And then strangely says, and Satan was among them, which is just kind of, what in the world is going on? (laughs) But it's this whole courtroom scene, the divine council. But I think most notably in the Old Testament, at least, is in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to how it reads. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Imagine in your mind a courtroom, the judge is coming in, and the picture is that the Ancient of Days the old, wise one, that is God himself, it's another name for him, he comes and takes his seat. It goes on to say, his clothing was white as snow, the hairs of his head were like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from behind him, before him. A thousand thousand served him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And so it is here in Revelation 16, as we found, court is in session. The verdict is pronounced in verse 5, or implied in verse 5, where it says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. We discussed that in detail last time. So while these judgments may appear as just acts of divine retribution, they're not. They're actually reveal, as we already discussed, God's deep desire for repentance, that people would experience the profound transformation of coming into repentance towards the Lord Jesus Christ as we know him. And since God prioritizes the eternal over the temporal, he's willing to use these extreme measures when necessary and when the time is short. And yet the fact is, as we found, many of these judgments are consequences natural consequences of human behaviors. They're they're the consequences of not so much his divine, direct intervention towards man. Why do I say that? Because the vast majority of the, quote, judgments in the Bible are God giving man over to his desires. The judgment of God is saying, your will be done. You want to do this? Fine. And that's why when he said in in, uh, Genesis in chapter 6, I will not strive with man forever, The process of him striving with man was his grace. But his judgment was, I'm done. I'm removing. And though the judgment of the flood was an active judgment, the primary judgment of God was him passively removing himself and saying, your will be done. You want to do this thing? Go ahead and do it. And that's why Romans 1 says he gave them over to the lust of their flesh. He allows man to do what he wants him to do. That's what Romans says the judgment of God is. And so while he does come in judgment, as we commonly understand it, 
The primary means of that judgment is something completely different. And thus God allows the people to face the outcomes of their choices because when we suffer the consequence of our choices, it often draws us into the loving embrace of Christ. And so now we find ourselves discussing the sixth bowl judgment, which is marked most notably by number one, the drying up the river Euphrates, and number two, the unleashing of this demonic entities that, number three, lead those who took the mark of the beast to gather for the great day of the battle of God Almighty. And the place to which they're gathered is the place, as the text says here, Armageddon. And so I ask myself, well, what in the world is Armageddon? And for centuries, that term has held a powerful, ominous sway over our collective imaginations. I think you'd agree. Hollywood uses it to capture our attention. The news agencies use it to emphasize catastrophic situations. It's Armageddon out there. And the cultures use it to represent the most dreaded fears of humanity, which is a very real possibility even today of total worldwide nuclear war. That's a very real possibility. And yet what many people might not realize is that Armageddon is actually a biblical term. It's used here. And it's associated with the sudden appearance, so the text says, with God at the great day of God Almighty. In verse 15, it says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. That's, that's a, an application for for those who listen to my sermons, by the way, <laughs> blessed are you, my child, you've stayed awake. But that's not what it means. Blessed are the ones who stay awake, keeping his garments on. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And so because this term Armageddon, many people have supposed that, well, it's clear he's talking about the Valley of Megiddo. I've thought this for years, and I, I really didn't have any reason not to believe it. I mean, I've taken people up to the Valley of Megiddo and said, this is where the last great battle is going to take place. And the reason we come to that, came to that conclusion is the word Har Megiddo literally translates to the mountain of Megiddo. And logistically, it makes sense. Napoleon said about the Valley of Megiddo, he said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There's no place in the whole world more situated for war than this. It is not without reason that this region has been chosen as the location of the final battle. So Napoleon comes onto the scene and says, yep, this is clearly, this is where a massive, I mean, where are you going to have a massive battle? Well, this is it, Har Megiddo. So logistically, it makes sense. But theologically, it doesn't. And if the battle was merely physical, maybe it would be up there, you know, to get all that many people there. But if it was spiritual, I'm not saying there's no physical expression of it, but if it was spiritual, maybe it could be somewhere else. And I think Dr. Michael Heiser in his groundbreaking book, The Unseen Realm, presents, I think, a compelling argument challenging the location of this battle. He especially posits that Armageddon actually refers to not the Valley of Megiddo way up north, which has no theological significance, but it's actually the city of Jerusalem itself. And truth be told, I can't, because I can parrot him and pretend I understand what he's saying in the language. That's not going to help you. I can't do that. That's kind of like being, that's, that's being phony. But what I can do is use my own mind. So without being scholastic, I began to think this through. And the more you think it through, it actually makes sense. So let me ask you a few questions. When Jesus returns, where does he come? The Bible says he comes to the Mount of Olives. When he judges the nations... Where is he? 
The Bible says he's in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Where's the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Oh, it just happens to be the valley right outside the Eastern Gate between the old city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And in the book of Acts in chapter one, the promise of Christ's return in the same manner in which he left places him where? On the Mount of Olives. And these are all locations just outside the city of Jerusalem. And thus what we find biblically is that when Jesus returns, it's to the city of Jerusalem, it's not to Megiddo. And again, Megiddo has no theological significance for us, but Jerusalem does for various reasons. Jerusalem is often referred to as the city of David. It's referred to as the city of the great king. It plays a central role in the biblical narrative and prophecy. It's where Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And it's associated with the dwelling place of God and his promises that there will be from him an everlasting kingdom. The Messiah will come there and rule for a thousand years. It's called the millennial reign of Christ. And Jerusalem will be the center, so the scripture says, of justice, righteousness, and peace upon the earth. And consequently, it's also the place where the devils desire to rule. Because the devil always wants to rule where God rules. This little basis of the Antichrist going into the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. I want to sit where God sits. And that's a repeated theme in Scripture. Now, many have noticed in kind of a debate against this, they've noticed that Zechariah chapter 12, that it talks about the plains of Megiddo, and it does, when the Lord returns. And I'll read you the verse, but think, this, think what I'm going to tell you in your mind as I read you the verse. Pay attention to the words when I read the verse. Zechariah 12 talks about Megiddo, but only as a simile to describe the anguish that is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. In other words, because something very painful happened in Megiddo in times past, it uses the experience to suggest that Jerusalem in the future will experience the same level of pain when they're surrounded by the armies of the earth. The Bible says the day's coming when everyone is, not just Hamas, it's going to be the whole nations of the world. Look how Zechariah 12, 9 reads. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and the pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, this is Old Testament, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimnon in the plain of Megiddo. What is he saying? He's saying that there will be a day when Israel, look at the language there, will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, who do they pierce? They pierce their king the promised, prophesied Messiah, they put him upon a tree, Calvary's cross. But the day will come when they look on him whom they have pierced, and they will realize that they crucified their Messiah 2,000 years ago. All of the suffering, all of their history was actually unnecessary. And at that point, God will have mercy and grace upon Israel. Because in their desperation with all of the nations of the world surrounding them, putting them at great threat, they cry out to God with all of their heart, and God answers. And when they look upon him whom they pierced, at that point in time, they will weep as a mother would weep 
for the death of her only child. And they'll do this in Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Again, the armies of the earth are going to come against. It's going to be a mass invasion, and they're going to boil the nation down to the city of Jerusalem. And he says, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move forward, northward, and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And again, the nations are surrounding Israel. They're not up in the valley of Megiddo, but they're in Israel, down in Jerusalem. But there in Jerusalem, they're waiting to destroy the Jews. Anti-Semitism is demonic. And in that day of desperation, the Jews cry out to God for mercy. God listens. God comes down. So the text says, and when he comes down, it says he sets his foot upon the Mount of Olives. And notice the text there, the mountain splits in two. It's probably a natural event. A massive earthquake takes place. And that valley that is rifted there from the city of Jerusalem opens up a pathway that in the chaos that's all around them, they're able to flee down to Azel. And I think it's interesting, as a side note, he removes the righteous before he judges the wicked. Interesting pattern in Scripture. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Who is this? It's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, against whom is Christ making war? It tells us in verse 15 of chapter 19, the very next verse. Who is Christ making war with? Again, same with Zechariah, it's against the nations. And why does he make war? Why does he make war on their behalf? Why can't they just defend himself? Interesting, because the situation is going to get so bad that they literally cannot do anything. And when the situation is so bad, there's other powers at work. And if you try to fight against those powers in your own strength, you will be destroyed. And therefore, as we sang this morning, the battle has to, I'll add, belong to the Lord. It has to belong to the Lord. There is going to be a dynamic that is so severe that you literally can do nothing except for be still and know that he is God. So the man's strength is going to come out of relationship to God, not with the breadth of his own chest. And today they can fight for themselves. But in that day, they cannot make that distinction. And in fact, let me say this, when things are so demonic, and maybe I already said this, God does the battle because we have no ability to withstand. So the question is, is this battle of Armageddon demonic? Look at verse 13. And then I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And I don't know if you've ever been in a truly demonic situation. I have. You know the battle has to belong to the Lord. 
Because there's dynamics that take place in the spiritual realm if you've ever risked yourself for the Lord. Most people haven't. Some people have. Most people hedge their bets. But you actually kind of put all your eggs in the Jesus basket and say, I'm going I'm to live for you. Get ready for a battle. Get ready for a cleverness on behalf of our enemy that so far exceeds your ability to calculate. Get ready for dynamics to take place that he will plan for years on end so that in a moment... He can invade the land. The reality is, is it's so serious. It'd be like a kindergartner trying to fight against Mike Tyson in his prime. And it'd be absolutely devastation. The devils would destroy us. And so God's asking you and I in that day, in that real spiritual conflict, that you can't do anything. There's times where he has us take up the sword. But there's times where he says, this is, more, this is bigger than you, son. This is bigger than you. And you, I, you and I are unable to stand toe-to-toe in that kind of a situation if the battle is truly dynamic. Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, it's just a guy being a jerk. But when it's truly demonic, the devil's way too smart, and God knows that you can't survive. You can't outwit the devils. You know, the whole idea of a demon, the connotation in the language is wisdom. They've been around for thousands of years. I've been around for 51 years. It feels like thousands of years, but it's not. (laughs) It just feels like thousands of years. That's why I said I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to sleep for like 10,000 years. That's the first thing. It's like people are all, you know, I read those passages and they're raising their hands and they're rejoicing in the Lord and everything. I just, man, this sounds so tiring. I'm so tired. I just want to sleep. (laughs) And I assume he'll give me energy, you know, massive vitamin B dose or something. (laughs) But get this, Israel's being surrounded. They're about to die. And God suddenly instantly steps in and saves them. And then they look on him whom they have pierced. They realize they crucified their Messiah, the long-awaited hope of Israel. And then they begin to cry, which is a wonderful sign of repentance. And as Paul says in Romans 11, all of Israel will be saved. And so I ask, are the events we're seeing today leading up to the Battle of Armageddon that's prophesied in Revelation 16, the events in Israel today, in October 2023. I would say this, the foundation is being laid. But the short answer is no. For the quick answer, has the Antichrist set up his image in the temple? No, so this isn't Artemageddon, those of you that kind of know shop talk. What took place is horrible. I've listened to reports, you probably see them, I wanna be careful how I describe them because they're graphic. But who knows, you guys are mature enough. But the reports of decapitating babies, murdering them, the reports of gathering together and having it on webcams where they recorded this, it's not speculation, like, oh, that's digital AI. No, it's not. It was recorded live where they tied the hands of children together, Jewish children, put them in piles and set them on fire, and they said, we found no bullets because they burned them alive. They have situations where instantly there was a man, a woman, and their two little children, a seven and a five-year-old. They took the man and the woman and tied them together, put the children on the other side of the room, plucked the man's eyeball out, then take an ax and cut off his wife's breast in front of him, and then take that same ax and chop the fingers off of the one child and then the toes off the other, and then murder them. And then you have these morons getting up in front of them, you know, we stand with Palestine, you moron. It's evil. 
And what took place, I mean, the stories go on and on and on and on. It is the most graphic presentation of horror I've ever seen in my life. And I'm a study of Nazi, I'm a student of Nazi Germany. It was beyond evil. And yet with that said, the foundation is being laid. The spirit that is motivating them is the same spirit that's going to bring about Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 37 38. It's the same spirit. But Gog and Magog isn't Armageddon. Different groups of people, different location. That's the short answer. Just do the homework yourself. But Armageddon, I would suggest to you, though it's not the same event, it is the same exact spirit. But as I look at it from pretty much a, a pretty educated guess, not randomness, have, being a student of, of news and prophecy for years, you know, 30 plus years. I look at the word and I say, yeah, the foundations are there. The parts are in place, but there's a critical problem. As I look at it objectively, not emotionally, a lot of, a lot of people look at it in panic. But as I kind of remove myself from the situation, which is called a discipline, because I don't naturally go there. As I remove myself from the situation, I look at it from the outside, you realize suddenly that Hamas jumped the gun. Iran has been planning this event for a long time. But Iran wanted to coordinate it with Hezbollah up north on the Lebanese border. They wanted to coordinate it down south with Gaza, which is basically interesting. That Gaza Strip is where the Philistines that tormented Israel, that's where they lived. <laughs> Modern-day Philistines in spirit, not in genetics. And you have the terrorists on the east. Israel, in turn, responds with 300,000 armed soldiers overnight. They're buying all sorts of new equipment for them through donations from private citizens, new armored vests, new everything. 100,000 up north, 100,000 on the West Bank, 100,000 down south in Gaza. And they're in a moment getting ready to invade. And thoroughly, everything I've seen is they're going to thoroughly extricate the problem. If they stop short of thoroughly extricate the problem, there will be no context in the future by which they would say peace and security. And I'd suggest to you this is a necessary step for that threat of a group of terrorists on their south, a group of terrorists on their north, which is a tiny country, by the way, to be completely eradicated. And it's only once that happens, Egypt, they're at peace with. Jordan, they're at peace with. But once Lebanon is dealt with, Syria, that's, well, it's only a 45-minute drive, tell you the truth, from the northern part of Israel. But nonetheless, it's not as powerful as it thinks. I mean, Russia's backing it, but that's a whole other story. Russia's not as powerful. Russia's not in the place that they can do anything right now. But what you have is the precedent for peace will not be had, as the scripture says there will be, if this is allowed to go on. And so Hamas jumped the gun, but it's backfiring on them. First, they take all of these hostages, and the idea behind it is we take these hostages, and then for each hostage, you release a 1,000 of our prisoners. And now they build up an army based on these hostages because they understand the Jews and the Americans, they value human life, whereas the Muslims, they don't give a rip. You know, if you die in war, it's... <laughs> You're going to heaven. The fact is, Iran wants a war. But they didn't want, and every indication is Hamas, because they're always rebellious. You know, you get the idea as all these Arab factions are working together. No, it's like the PLOs are always like this. They're trying to jump the gun. 
try to be the first one into the conflict. And so they ran ahead with the, rest of the, te- with the football while the rest of the team was still huddling out back and saying, dude, what are you doing? We're not hiking the ball yet. They're like, <laughs> you know, running down the sidelines. But in that, they revealed their agenda. And their agenda was very interesting. It was a new tactic. Flood the land before they can respond. Now, I agree. There's a lot of suspicion going on. As one IDF soldier, a female, she said, we know if a butterfly lands on our gate. And we didn't know about this. And so they're now trying to pin this on Benjamin Netanyahu, which um, I don't think so. I don't think so. It doesn't add up. What is likely going on is even as we have a deep state, they have a deep state. And somebody needed this event to happen. Maybe somebody that's sending warships to prevent war, but is actually creating the context for war. Maybe somebody that needs a huge distraction from the political problems they're in. Maybe a certain somebody that needs a conflict to take place called World War III to justifiably, because COVID won't work again, so we tried that a few months ago. I mean, it's real, but people aren't buying our narrative, and they shouldn't. So we need another conflict. We need something to legitimately say, ah, got to postpone the elections. Somebody needs to be doing this. So it doesn't make sense what we're seeing as the explanation. Oh, they suddenly caught off sauce guard. But what it did reveal, and I think Satan always tips his hand, it did reveal the spirit that is there. Always look at things spiritually. And their plan was to flood the land before Israel had a chance like the day of Yom Kippur, right? Before Israel has a chance to respond. And when you look at Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38 and 39, what happens? Every indication is that Israel is going to be invaded in mass, as it says, by a peaceful, unsuspecting people. They're going to be invaded by mass by all the surrounding countries. Actually, they list five countries there. Russia is included in them. Libya, uh, put, I believe is there. Uh, uh, Persia, which is Iran, comes in. All in all, they come in in mass. And it's interesting, the only two African countries that have not made peace and have not recognized Israel, I, can't, I forget which one it is. Tell me, it was Libya and maybe it was uh, Ethiopia, I think it was. They have not recognized Israel. And they're listed today, modern day, and they're listed as one of two of the countries that are going to invade from the south. The only two countries that don't recognize Israel today are the ones that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38. So there's going to be a massive invasion, but it's not going to be worldwide in Ezekiel 38. Hamas tipped the hand of the strategy. But Ezekiel 38 is yet to happen. Ezekiel 38 can happen any time. They say, well, it's, it's Armageddon. Nope, it's not Armageddon. There's different people, different places, different contexts. It's not the same event. Hal Lindsey's a great guy. He got that wrong. It doesn't pass scholastic scrutiny. But Ezekiel 37 and 38 can happen at any time upon the earth. And I believe that first it's Hamas. Whoop! This is our strategy. It's not going to work. Israel's going to wipe them out and create a context of peace and security whereby Ezekiel 38 and 39, 37, 38, 39 can take place. And then there's going to be a massive invasion by five different countries around Israel, including Russia, 
to the far north, Gog and Magog, they're going to come and invade the land again. But Russia doesn't want to get involved in the conflict, the text says. It says the hook is put into its jaw. It's almost like because of a, I don't know, a, a financial agreement, uh, uh, bricks or something like that, uh, they are now forced into an allegiance with an invasion of a land that they don't really want to get into. But they're forced into it. A hook is put into the jaw, so says Ezekiel. And they're pulled into the conflict. And every indication is that Israel drops the bomb upon themselves because the army is so massive. We've already seen what Hamas was going to do. We know what you guys are going to do. They drop the bomb on themselves and wipe out the army. But Israel apparently survives that in some measure. And you say, well, all of Israel's now in the city of Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. How is that going to work? Because there's probably only that much left. And now Israel's in Jerusalem. The Antichrist sets up his image. He sends a peace. You know, the Holocaust produced the land of Israel, which they're trying to deny today, which is complete baloney. These people are mentally ill. The Holocaust produced the land of Israel. I think Gog and Magog is going to produce the temple. And in that temple, the Antichrist comes in, sets up his image. And when he sets up his image, he declares himself to be God because he's the one who orchestrated the peace. And this leads, of course, invariably to the Battle of Armageddon, as chapter 16 speaks about, where now not just Hamas, not just Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 with the surrounding five countries, but now the nations of the world invade the land of Israel. And at that point in time, God says, this is so demonic. The spirits went out, as it says in verse 13. I need to raise a standard against it. And the children of Israel cry out to God, probably for some of them the first time ever. And God listens. He sees their broken hearts. God is close to the brokenhearted, so says Isaiah. And that's the thing I hate about trials and pain. Man, I hate the brokenness, but man, you hear God a lot clearer. And now all of a sudden, God responds to their dilemma and saves them. In Matthew in chapter 25, Jesus also speaks about this when he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. There it is, the nations again. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The same things in Joel chapter 3. Joel 3 verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Right there, the Kidron. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage, Israel. And one last point. You see, how, you see why I said this is probably Jerusalem? One last point. Jerusalem is arguably referred to in the book of Isaiah as the mountain of assembly in Isaiah 14, verse 13. Listen to how it reads. Remember, this passage, Revelation 16 says they're going to be gathered to Armageddon, Har-Magod, essentially. They're going to be gathered to Har-Magod. And we said, oh, that's Armageddon up north. Or is it? It is a mount. But is it Megiddo? 
In Isaiah 14, 3, when Lucifer is talking, as the old King James calls him, the Lord rebukes him and says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heavens, to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. You know what the word there for mount of assembly is? Har Magod. The same idea of the mount Har Mageddon, Megiddo. It's the same language. And that's why I said guys like Dr. Michael Heiser gives you the argument in the language where he says essentially linguistically it's saying the same thing. I can't say that with any modicum of authority, but it makes sense to me with the information that I can use to come to that conclusion. I will, the devil saying, I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, Z-A-P-H-O-N. Now, how do we get Jerusalem from that? Follow my logic. Wherever God dwells, that is the most high place. Would you agree? I would. And when God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he says, take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Why is it holy ground? Because God is there. Sometimes people say Israel today is the holy city, holy, you know, holy nation. It's the holy place, the promised land. Well, it's not because God's not there. But when God literally sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, then it'll become holy. He tells Moses in Exodus 3, take off your shoes. Why? Because it's holy ground. Why? Because God's there. And the presence of God is what makes it high and holy. And when God is in heaven, the mount of assembly is the high and holy place. Or as it says in Isaiah 14, the mount of assembly, Hamagod. When we pray, we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Let the Mount of Assembly come here. And when the Lord comes down, as the Bible says, where he rules, where he rules will become the most high place upon the earth. Ipso facto, it will become the Mount of Assembly, the Har Moed, Moged, where we've incorrectly said is Armageddon. And therefore, when he comes to Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be Har Moged, the Mount of Assembly. In Revelation 16, where does God gather his armies? To Har Megiddon. And then Isaiah says in chapter 14, to the utmost heights of Zaphon. And I ask myself, what in the world is Zaphon? Zaphon, it's the divine mountain of the gods in the ancient Near East mythologies. And it's also the sacred mountain in various ancient cultures that was believed to be the dwelling place of the gods. <laughs> the Harmoged is the place where God dwells, the Mount of Assembly. Whether on earth or in heaven, in heaven Satan wants to exalt himself to the Mount of Assembly, where all the gods dwell, as Isaiah 14 says. It's the exalted place, it's the elevated place. And these elevated places were symbolically where the true and the living God dwells. And if you think about it, in pagan thought, the, God, the gods dwell upon the hills. You know, you read the Old Testament, you say the Baal Peor. You say, well, that's an interesting name. His last name's Peor, first name Baal. Well, that's not what it's saying. It means the Lord of Peor. What is Peor? It was a region. In other words, these were tutelary deities. 
They're establishing their authority on different mountaintops. So when David in the psalm says, when I look to your mountains, remember that when I look to the hills, where does my help come from? He wasn't saying, man, I get so in touch with God when I get out in nature. Now, if you get in touch with God when you get out in nature, God bless you. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying, man, I look around the hills and the hills are big. And then I think, well, God is big. And then I think, man, God's much bigger than the hills. So when I look to the hills, wow, Lord, you're amazing. Where does my help come from? It comes from you, Lord. He wasn't saying this. He was saying, I look to the hilltops, the places where these pagan gods were being worshipped all around me. And if you're in the city of Jerusalem, in the city of David, and many of you have, you sit there and look, the hills are all around you. They were worshipping these pagan gods all around them. And he says, when I look to those places that the pagans are being worshipped, oh God, no, my help does not come from them. It comes from you who made the heavens and the earth, including those hilltops where those fallen gods, those false gods, are being worshipped today. They're real, but they're false. And it's an exalted place, Zaphon. It's an elevated place. And these elevated places, like Baal Peor or Baal Zabub, remember that one, Baal Zabub, where we later on got a name for the devil in the New Testament? And Lucifer, or Satan's desire, is to exalt himself to the Mount of Assembly. And it symbolizes a spiritual struggle for dominion, doesn't it? And it implies that such mounts, quote-unquote, are places of divine and spiritual significance. And what a better place to have dominion than to have it in the place where God is going to dwell. Again, the Antichrist goes into the temple because that's where God dwells. I want to rule where he rules. I want to go to the Mount of Assembly. I want to be just like him. And so when the Lord returns you have to realize what's going on is a spiritual conflict. There's a battle going on. It's not just the armies. Yeah, the armies are there, but there's a demonic horde that came forth emblematic in the false trinity, or as Jonathan Kahn calls it, the dark trinity. You know, the true trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The dark trinity is Satan playing the role of Father. The Antichrist playing the role of Son. And the false prophet playing the role of the Holy Spirit. And these demons come out of them and gather the people of the earth. So the whole thing is demonic. The, the principal issue going on in this massive invasion of Israel is a demon spirit. Spirits, plural. And that's why when the Lord returns on earth as it is in heaven, he sets his foot on Mount Zion. Psalm 48 verse 2 describes Mount Zion as beautiful in elevation. Notice the language. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Again, what does Matthew 25 say? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered to him. And so when he returns, where will the Mount of Assembly be? It'll be where he sits upon his throne, which will be according to Psalm chapter 2, the city of Jerusalem. Look how it reads. Verse 1, why do the nations rage? Again, the nations are raging before the Lord returns. Before he set his king on Zion, the nations are raging. Why do the nations rage? Psalm 2 is prophetic. And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, Klaus Schwab, 
and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, the Christ, saying, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the powers behind these kings are spirits, as we said. And the battle being fought, though men are engaged, is really between those spirits behind the scenes, controlling and manipulating men for their own destruction. People have asked me, so well, what's the, what are demons doing? What's their kind of job title? Here's what they do. They teach men to lean upon their own understanding and teach them how to destroy themselves faster. That's what the devils do. But the king of kings comes. He sets up his kingdom, and in order to do so, he must put their kingdom down. And he does so permanently, finally, and completely. And that's why the psalmist says, In your presence, Lord, the mountains will melt like wax. Anybody seen a mountain melt like wax lately? It's prophetic. What are the mountains? The places where those gods were worshipped. And what does he do? He comes and melts not just anything. He says, I'm going to destroy those places where the gods, the false gods, they're real, but they're false, where they are being worshipped, where they're given homage. These tutelary deities are going to be wiped out when? In his presence, when he returns. He is coming back to set down the powers that be. And unfortunately, to cut off men who have volitionally, repeatedly, rebelliously chosen to cast their lot with the enemy. He's not willing that any of them should perish, but they make the choice of their own will. That's why also prophetically the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know, the, I know the earth used to be the Lord's, and I know he gave it to man, and I know the man gave it to the devil. In Matthew chapter 4, it says... Um, Bow down to me, Satan said, and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Well, Jesus didn't say, no, those aren't yours, those are mine. Right? He responded to the argument as though it was true. And the reality is, is that it went from God to man to the devil. Well, Jesus comes back. You know what he does when he comes back? He says, uh-uh, I made it, you stole it, I redeemed it, now I'm here to claim it. And he melts the mountains. Understand the language. You can look at it from a scientific standpoint, and it's very likely that he's reshaping the land and restoring the earth back to the Garden of Eden. That's very possible. But you miss the figurative language. He comes to destroy those false gods permanently, forever. Well, at least until the millennium's up, and then he allows people again to get a taste of them, and that's a whole other story. But nonetheless, these things have not happened. But they will. And that's why the book ends by saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. You know when I don't want Jesus to come? When my heart is so tied in the things of this earth. You want to panic? Try to serve, preserve your own life. Try it. You'll freak out because you'll hit a point where you can't. You want to have peace? Trust in the Lord. It doesn't mean you don't make preparation. 
It means realize, unless you build this house, Lord, all the labors labor in vain. I mean, so much of the panic of moving to North Idaho is built upon a fear. Okay, fine. But you know, that has consequence. What's the motivation? Is it God has told me? Thus saith the Lord. I mean, I would agree with you. We live in the best place on this living earth. We really do. But this living earth is not that great. (laughs) But relatively speaking, but even that, why am I here? What am I doing what I'm doing? Am I resting in my Lord? And you see, the devil is going to be very, very clever in the last days. And because of our pride in the Christian culture, we think that we'd never be outwitted. The Christian man isn't somebody that, you know, is never deceived. It's the man that realizes I can be very easily deceived. And I bring myself into alignment with my Lord on a regular basis. And I'm saying, God, am I seeing this wrong? Help me to be concerned about my stuff. You know, it gives this false spirituality when you become so concerned about everybody else. Deal with your own business. Because the Bible says, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. The guy that's dealing with everybody else thinks he stands. The man who's just doing what the Lord tells him to do is going to be attacked six ways and sideways. And there's one more six in there, I can't remember. (laughs) He's going to be attacked. And people that are given to sensual wisdom will say, yep, there's proof. What's the proof? He's attacked. Okay. Wise one. Now, the reality is, is that it's going to get so bad. God gives us foretastes of what's coming on the scene. I was talking with my dad about this the other day. And we were talking about different dynamics he's gone through, going through, etc. Things I've gone through, going through, etc. And our conclusion was that it's going to get so bad, so fast. There's not going to be a context for us to do what we're supposed to do. And it's going to change instantly. Yet the Christian is over and again recognizing there's a spiritual conflict. It's not just men. It's a spiritual conflict. We're in a battle. And when you've been faithful to our Lord, it is so real, it's palpable. You get to a point where you can't do anything. Guess what? God says, ah, step aside. You can't handle this. The battle belongs to the Lord. God, I pray that you'd help us to honor you. That we're entering into times and seasons that a logical mind could panic. But Lord, as we enter into the faith of, you said, I told you these things were going to happen so that when they happen, you won't be surprised. And yet, when they happen, we're surprised. God, I pray for your grace. I I keep praying for the removal of problems. And I think for the rest of my life, I will. But I know what your word says. The problems aren't going to get removed. But what you promised is more grace. And so, Lord, I pray for more grace. I pray for more capacity to walk with you, to know you, to honor you. My flesh, just like theirs, rages war in a thousand different directions when we're stressed and pressed. And it's nothing that we feel, but it's a discipline of the Christian to bring those feelings before your throne. And so, God, I pray that you'd have mercy on us. You'd forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, make us whole. Help us to keep our minds stayed upon you. Help us to know when to do battle. 
and when the battle belongs to the Lord. Help us not to dishonor you in the way we act. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.